Well, um, I want you to just turn initially in your Bibles to Exodus 34. We're going to land in Malachi chapter 1 and 2, but initially would you turn to Exodus chapter 34. Maybe you've done a study on the names of God. Studying the names of God is a worthy study because the names of God are more than just titles. They are representative and indicative of his nature, who God is, how he operates, his character is summed up often in the names in which he describes himself. In Hebrew, God is called El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. He is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power in Hebrews 1. He is the one who protects and provides for his people. Nothing can thwart his purposes. He is El Shaddai. God is also known as El Roy. In Genesis 16, Hagar, in her loneliest moment... When unobserved and unseen by every other eye on planet earth, she testifies that God is El Roy because he is the God who what? Sees. He doesn't just know you exist. He sees, he knows, and he's watching. God is known as Jehovah Jireh. He is the Lord who provides. Every single need in your life is met by a God who provides for you. I was just even thinking about this. In the Sabbath commandments, the Israelites were instructed to gather twice the amount of manna on Saturday or on their sixth day, which would be Friday, so that on the seventh day they were rest, and but also be reminded that God is a God who provides and cares for them. God is Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is our peace in a turbulent, chaotic unsettling world. God is our peace. But there is another name of God, and this name of God is in conjunction with the unique and profound attribute of God that we are going to consider this morning. I would venture to say that you've likely never sung about this name of God. It's often left off of posters. Um, It's not often sung about. We see this name of God, and it's the last name that Yahweh will give Moses in Exodus 34. He has given his covenant commands, and he is going to show the importance of keeping those commands. Now, pause for a moment. You know, often we say, hey, before we jump in, I want to give you a little context. And I I think sometimes when we think about context, we think about just the facts and information that precede the text. But I love what R.C. Sproul used to say, whenever we would look into a portion of scripture, we need to find the drama because the drama is unfolding and God is going to give a name about himself in the midst of a drama. In Exodus 32, Moses goes up the mountain and he's writing on these tablets who God is and his commands for his people. And while he is up there, the people of God grow anxious and they tell Aaron, where is the one who led us out of Egypt? We don't even remember anymore. And Aaron looks at all the people and says, hey, gold bracelet, come here. Gold necklace, come here. Gold bracelet, here, here, here. Give it all to me, inklet, everything. Who wears anklets? I don't know, the people of God. He says, give it all, strucks a golden calf. And then he says, here is your God, O Israel, who led you out of the, peop- out of the, the presence and power of Egypt. Moses comes down the mountain, sees what's happening, smashes the tablets. God says, I'm going to consume them in my anger. I will destroy them. And I'm going to start all over again with you, Moses. And Moses says, no, God, don't do it. Don't do it. And it says, the Lord changed his mind. But then Moses comes down and he says, whoever is for Yahweh, step forward. And the tribe of Levi steps forward. And he tells the tribe of Levi, 
take your sword, strap it on your thigh, and whoever is not for Yahweh, take him down. Now, in Exodus 34, God is going to instruct Moses to go back up the mountain and write tablets once again because the ones that he had written before had been destroyed. And initially, and at the end of chapter 33, Moses, in the midst of this crisis, pleads with God that God would show him his glory. And when God goes to display and manifest his glory, the first thing he does is he mounts the pulpit and begins to preach a sermon on his own character. And God will say some of the most magnificent words in all of Scripture in Exodus 34, 6, and you know these words well. It says, Then Yahweh passed by in front of him, and it says, The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children, or of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses satisfies in the morning with your loving kindness. And God says, you want to know something about that love? It's not like there's a sliver that needs to get divided amongst my children. I'm abounding. I'm overfilling with that type of love. But in verse 12, he's going to continue to reveal his character. A.W. Tozer used to say that it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Meaning that God is not just love. He's not just holiness. He's not just justice. He's not just compassionate and gracious. And the attributes of God are not pieces of the pie that is God. Meaning that when you consider God, it's not that God is 50% love, 30% mercy, and 10% justice, 5% wrath. He's not pieces of a pie. He is all of his attributes all of the time in full measure. And we would have an incomplete view of God if we did not understand the next attribute that God is going to give to Moses here. It says in Exodus 34, verse 12, watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. Watch the language here. But rather you are to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and cut down their asherim. For you shall not worship any other god. Pause. Look at me for a moment. God is about to give the reason for that command. And think of all the reasons he could have given. He could have said, you shall not worship any other god because if you do, you're going to get sexually transmitted diseases, which would have been true because that's what the pagan gods practiced. He would have said, or could have said, don't do this because it won't satisfy your soul, which also would have been true. He could have said, it will destroy the nation, which would have been true. But what does he say? He says, you shall not worship any other God for Yahweh, whose name is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their 
gods. He says, for Yahweh, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. God looks at Moses. He looks at his people, and he looks at you this morning through his living and active word and says, if you want to have a right view of me, you can start by considering one of my names. My name is El Kanah. Call me that. When you think about who I am, I want you to consider the reality that I am a jealous God. Someone write a song about it. Twyla Paris or whoever it is. El Shaddai, El Shaddai. No, I want you to write a song. El Kanah, El Kanah. Because I am not just mildly displeased when you worship and serve other gods. I am burning with jealousy for my own honor and glory. Artists, poets, lyricists. God says, come here, take your talents and make this attribute of mine known. We don't talk about this attribute of God often, do we? Sadly, this attribute of God is ignored if not denied because of the contemporary and cultural definitions of the word. Merriam-Webster defines jealousy as hostility towards a rival. Another definition of jealousy describes a feeling of showing an envious resentment to someone of their achievements, possessions, or perceived advantages. Jealousy is also described in Shakespearean literature as the green-eyed monster because of its association with um, when Lago is speaking to Othello about reputation and insecurity. He says, oh, beware, my lord, of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster that doth mock the meat it feeds on. And this manner of relational insecurity, as read in Othello, often taints the way many interpret God's jealousy. One may think God is jealous, therefore he must be insecure. He must be petty. But down the list of definitions for jealousy, you will also find intolerance of unfaithfulness or vigilance in guarding a precious possession. These latter definitions provide just a glimpse of what jealousy means as it relates to God himself. God's jealousy is not insecure pettiness. It's not a wrinkle or a weakness in God's divine character. It is an expression of his holiness, love, and power. So how do we define God's jealousy? Well, God's jealousy is his constant aim to promote and protect his own glory and to operate in love towards those who are in covenant relationship with him, and to operate with vigilance towards anyone who would oppose his supremacy. God doesn't tolerate alternative lovers. God's jealousy is not to be swept under the carpet, but is rather of worship amongst those who serve him, and an impetus for fear for those who would reject him. Jealousy, far from being some peripheral gilding of God's character, is the predominant reason why God gives the first two commandments. He says, don't worship any other gods, Exodus 20. Don't make idols of any other gods. Why? For he says, for the Lord is a jealous God. James Montgomery Boyce says, rightly understood Jealousy is central to any right understanding of God. Now, with that as our framework, would you turn with me to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi? 
here in this short book of Malachi, we're going to witness two realities regarding the jealousy of God. And to provide some context for you, Malachi is the last Old Testament prophet, and he is prophesying in a profound time of spiritual darkness and declension. It says in verse 1, the oracle of the word of Yahweh to Israel through Malachi. This Hebrew word, Masai, is more rightly translated burden. It's the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Because to bear and communicate God's message to God's people is no light thing. It's not an easy thing. It's not a feather. It's a burden. And there is a heaviness of opening up God's word to God's people. And Malachi's heart is broken because he sees what the people do not. The people have returned from exile and the temple had been partially restored, but not to its Solomonic glory. The sacrificial system had been renewed, but the religion had become ritual. And ritual religion always results in callous and cold hearts. The people of God at this time have their PhDs in playing religion. They were defined by a spiritual mediocrity. They were giving God their leftovers. If you had to put a slogan over the people of God's worship at this time, it would be, anything will do. It's just God. John Benton's commentary on the book of Malachi is entitled, Losing Touch with the Living God. And this is exactly what's happening with God's people. God had lavished his love upon his people. He had provided for them. He had led them out of Egypt. He had led them out of exile. And he had demonstrated his power and commitment to them generation after generation. And instead of reciprocating that love to the God who had poured out his love towards them, they're just going through the motions and they're going through a downward spiral. They had lost intimacy. They had lost vibrancy of relationship. They had lost affection and they had lost touch with the living God. The promise that Haggai had made years before of the coming Messiah had instead of fueling a life of obedience amongst God's people, had instead prompted this casual complacency and carelessness amongst them. And here in Malachi, God is going to issue a penetrating rebuke. And as he does so, he is going to remind the people of his profound jealousy, one for his own glory and two for the faithfulness of his people. Number one, as we'll observe here in Malachi, God is jealous for his own glory. I want you to look at verses six through eight with me of chapter one. God is speaking and he says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, and when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Throughout this short book, God is going to refer to himself 25 times as the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts. And the question is why? 
Well, it's because God is wanting to remind his people that he is not the mayor of Burbank. He is the king of all of creation. And this is at a time where the people are treating God with disdain. It's cool, God. What's up? High fives. No, and God wants to know them to know, I am not just a mayor. This isn't a small village. I rule and reign over all of creation. I uphold the universe by the word of my power. And you have lost touch because you've lost sight of who I am. I am the Lord of armies. The people had thought that they would return with all of their glory after the exile, but they're still under the thumb of Persia here. And within a hundred years of their return, their worship had grown lackadaisical. And the Lord is going to just sling at them a series of stinging rebukes. He's asking the people, where is my honor? And he's going to employ this prosecuting style of Q&A And then there's this incredulous rebuttal from the people. God's going to say, where is my honor? And then look at verse six. But you say, end of the verse, how have we despised your name? Verse seven, but you say, how have we defiled your name? The Lord responds with this formal accusation. He's not operating in pettiness and insecurity. He is jealous for his own glory and his own honor. The people are going through the motions, but God wants their entire heart. And he's saying, where is my honor? And the people respond and say, what are you talking about, God? Go to church every single week. We do the sacrifices. We sing the songs. We've got our PhDs in religion. Why is God's jealousy being provoked? Well, look back at verse seven. It says, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. Verse eight, but when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? God's jealousy is being provoked because the people are operating in a way that their worship is being done where they're giving God their leftovers. They're giving God their spiritual seconds. They don't bring God their best. They bring God their second best. In verse eight, it says that they are bringing the blind, the sick, and the lame animals to God for sacrifice. And God is looking at them saying, stop bringing me your leftovers. In the book of Exodus, we read that God brought his people out of Egypt, but God doesn't deliver to ditch his people. He delivered to dwell amongst his people. And the predominant thrust of Exodus is the tabernacle. God wants to dwell amongst his people. But at the end of Exodus, there's this massive problem. No one can approach God. Not even Moses was allowed to enter the tent of meeting. So in Leviticus, a system is established where God's wrath could be poured out on the substitute and the sinner would be reconciled to him and God would be able to dwell amongst his people in relational harmony. And so God implemented this system where they were to bring a unblemished, pure, spotless sacrifice. And when it comes time to make the sacrifice, the people don't go, let's give God our best. They're saying, what should we offer to the Lord? And they go, let's give him that one. The lamb with three legs and with one eye. Yeah, we don't want to give God our best. We'll give him the worst. We don't want. 
And God says, I will not have it. Look at verse 8b with me. God says, why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. God is looking at his people and saying, you treat your governor with more respect than the one who governs and rules and reigns over all things. The people had slipped into this ritual pageantry of worship and there's no true love and there's no true affection. And God is looking at them and saying, you give more time to your bosses, to your board of directors, to your mayor, to your governor, than you do to the Lord of armies. If you wouldn't bring these sacrifices to them, and then Harry texted me yesterday and asked me to fill in and was happy to do so. At camp every week, there's about a thousand students. And so my odds are fairly high that each day of the week, there's, it's, a, it's someone's birthday, you know, and so I'll, I'll ask them, hey, anybody's birthday? Or some girl will come up and say, hey, can I have a question? I have a question. It's Stacy's birthday today, and was wondering if we could sing to her. And I'll say, okay, Stacy with an I-E or a Y, and I-E, and um, I'll bring them up on stage, you know, and I'll say, anybody else's birthday? I've already got Stacy up here, and some guy will be like, yeah, you know, and uh What's your name? I'm Chad. You know, you're our Chad. I'll bring him up and I'll say, I'll bring, everyone stand with me. We're going to sing happy birthday. And there's typically two responses amongst the people that you sing to, right? One is Stacy, and Stacy's being sung a two, and it's a happy birthday, you know, dear Stacy. And Stacy's just like this. Yeah, thank you, thank you. And by the time the song is over, she's already aged. And then there's Chad, and Chad, Chad's the type of guy, you know, that goes, happy birthday to me. <laughs> but we like girls like Stacy, right? We like self-deprecating. We like modest. We like shy. I think somewhere along the lines, when we tell God and sing to him, oh, Lord, you deserve all all of the glory, all of the honor, and all of the praise. I think we go that God is thinking, ah, thank you. Ah, shucks. That's kind of you. But please deflect and direct your attention and your honor somewhere else. On the contrary, God does not say, that's okay. He says, crank up the volume so that all of the nations might know I am a great king. I am the Lord of armies and my honor and my glory will reach to the furthest corners of the globe. He is not shy. He is not modest. He is not self-deprecating. He is burning with jealousy for his own glory and his own honor. And the people treat their human governors with more respect than they do to God himself. Yet he rules over a people who give more to everybody and everything than they do to him. But the thing about your God, if you're a Christian, is God is not indifferent to the prospect of you living for an inferior glory. 
he burns with white-hot passion for his infinite awesomeness. I love Second Chronicles, or maybe it's First Chronicles 16.9. It says, For the eyes of Yahweh move to and fro throughout the earth. Pause. It says, For the eyes throughout the earth. Why? Why is God doing that? That he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. God is looking for one man and one woman today whose heart belongs to him. You may be heartless about God's glory, but God is not. He is not a megalomaniac, but you know what he would be? He would be an idolater if he lived for anything other than his own honor. Verse 9. But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part? Will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? He's looking at them saying, you plead for God's favor. You want his blessing on your life, but you give him your leftovers. You want the best from God, but you give him the least amount possible and the worst of your spices and the worst from your life. Verse 10. Oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. God is looking at them saying, hey, I'm actually looking for someone to do me a favor. Someone shut the gates of the temple. I don't care if you sing the songs. I don't care if you button up your shirt and you look real sharp. If your heart doesn't belong to me. In fact, you, 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 and you shut Grace Community Church down unless your heart belongs to me. I'm not about ritualistic worship. I'm not about the pageantry and accoutrements of religion. I am after hearts that belong to me. Why would you worship? Why would you sing? Why would you even come, God is asking. And what God wanted then is the same thing God wants now. How do I know? Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord. I change what? Not. Now, I want to read 11 through 14 with you. And I want you to notice the emphasis here. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and the grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what is taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so that you, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, blemished animal to the Lord, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Question for you. Do you think God is mildly interested in his own glory? 
Not to me. Not to me. My name is feared among the nations. God has given exact and precise requirements for how the people are to honor him. And instead of being thrilled and living a life of gratitude that they no longer have to wander around in ambiguity, wondering how they can please and honor God, they look at God and they go, this is too precise. This is too exacting. How tiresome it is. So they disdainfully sniff at it. God, why can't you be honored with less than our best? Why can't you be honored with our second best? This is so tiresome. And God says, you've missed it. My name for his own glory and his own honor. But not only that, God is also, secondly here, jealous for the faithfulness of his people. Look, with, look back with me at uh, chapter 1, verse 2. God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Of course, this latter element is built upon the former. God is demands here the fidelity of his people Because he loves them, but ultimately because God is most glorified when they give him what he deserves and what he demands. But there is something precious for us here. God is jealous of us and for the faithfulness of his people because he loves them. God says, I mean, even just to think about it for a moment, when we talk about the love of God, satisfy us with your love this morning. That is not a subject we are grabbing by conjecture as theologians sit and try to condense. Yeah, we think God loves us. No, that is a declared reality in the scripture. And in case you ever had any confusion, God says, I have loved you. God's relationship with his people is not merely transactional. He's not looking at them saying, hey, you, 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 I bought you. I made you. Respect me even though he does and can at other points in scripture, he's telling them and declaring to them, I have loved you. And he's reminding them that every single step of their life and every moment in it is a chronicle of God's abounding and steadfast love and commitment to them. Don't you understand for you and for the people of God, that all of their spiritual adultery and all of their spiritual infidelity is committed against a God who has poured out and demonstrated his love all along the way. It's not just that God has transactionally redeemed us, but that he loves us. And they respond by saying in verse two, how have you loved us? It's like a kid responding to their parent. You don't love me at all. And God's going, what? How have I loved you? Israel was not a side relationship with God. It was his people. In Deuteronomy 7, in verse 6, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his pride possession out of all of the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than the other peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you 
and kept the oath he swore to your fathers. He brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God has no side relationships. He's not married to you and texting someone else. He is committed to his people. He has one chosen nation. And it was never the worthiness of God's people that prompted the kindness and love of God, but the promotion and primacy of his own glory. That alliteration was in Harry's honor. Now, one of the things we have to consider is that God is demanding that they are faithful to him in return. Now, look with me at chapter 2. We'll cover this briefly. In verse 1, it says, And now this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send this curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. God issues a chilling rebuke at the priest, the very people who were responsible for functioning as the spiritual thermostat amongst the people. Those who were responsible for mediating God's presence and God's word had become duped into the spiritual anesthesia and they were commissioned to pronounce blessings towards the people. But God is saying, because you don't bring to me your entire heart and your worship is not genuine, I am going to take those blessings and I am going to turn them into curses because you give to me faithless, unwavering commitment. And he says, you are not taking my words to heart. There is a massive difference between hearing and listening. The people in the Bible that know the truth the best are the most susceptible and vulnerable to hearing but not listening, not taking it to heart, to never having truth impressed upon their soul. They know the answers, but they've lost touch with the living God. And God knows something that is observable for us today. At some point, you can only play the game for so long. Once your heart grows callous and once it grows cold, indifferent, and apathetic towards the God you come to worship, even the rituals you have become so professional at performing, they begin to dry. When was the last time you really, really worshiped God? That's Malachi's question. And that's God's question for us to consider this morning. So we are to let the scripture flay open our heart and rub salt into our conscience. Look with me at verse three. He says, behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. How can we make this PG? We cannot, uh, during the sacrifices, the internal bowels, of the animal were taken outside of the city to be discarded with their internal organs. And God is going is saying, I am going to take the internal organs from the sacrifices that you are bringing to me. And I am going to rub and smear them in your faces so that I would wake you up so that your heart would be prompted to consider I am after genuine affection and faithfulness from my people. He's going to rub refuse in the mask of their play religion. Can I ask you a question? If God were unmoved by the wavering affection of his people, 
what would it tell you about God? Well, let me put it to you another way. If I had a friend and I found out my friend's wife was cheating on him, and I went up to my friend and I said, hey, bro, I have some bad news for you. Your wife is not being faithful to you. She's in a relationship with another man. And if he responded and went, I don't care, she can do what she wants. What would that tell you about my friend's love for his wife? That it's not genuine at all, right? Because genuine love is what? Jealous love. It says Yahweh and Yah alone alone will, will hear and, and desire and want entire hearts committed to him. He's not indifferent to half-hearted allegiance. He does not shrug off relational infidelity. We see this picture vividly in Hosea where one of the key words throughout the book is whoredom. The people are spiritual adulterers. And yet God wants to wake them up because he knows that not only is he jealous, but their joy is maximized when they offer to him hearts of allegiance. In verse 4, he says, then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, says to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. What's this covenant with Levi? Well, in Numbers 25, there's a story, and I'll just reference it for you. There is a zealous priest who executes judgment, and God rewards this zeal with a covenant. In Numbers 25, 1, we read, when Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with their daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, meaning that sin had become so common, so normal that in the middle of the entire camp in front of Moses, all the elders, he's just bringing a Midianite woman into his tent. Sin wasn't concealed. And it says this, when Phinehas, Numbers 25, 7, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he rose and left the congregation, took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Verse 11, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, God is saying this, has turned back my wrath. He was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, I will give to him a covenant of peace. Phinehas stood in the gap, says, no, 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 God is being dishonored. This is not right. I'm not just going to sit here. I'm going to stand up. God is too glorious. He's too wonderful. So he grabs a spear and says, "Uh uh-uh, not today, not on my watch. And God looks at Phinehas and says, this dude gets it. Name your son's Phinehas because he burns with my type of jealousy for my glory. And God says, I want the covenant that I made with Phinehas to continue. I want to rain down peace on you. I want to give you my blessing. And my blessing rains down on those who are pumped out of their mind for my glory. For the sake of time, where is the hope in this passage? It's in Malachi 3, 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple 
and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Someone is coming and something will happen in the temple. 400 years after this, John the Baptist will come and he will say, I want every single valley to come up, every mountain be brought low, prepare the way for the Messiah. And the Messiah would come and in all four gospels, there is an account of Jesus entering the temple courts and it says that he purified and he drove out every animal and all the money changers. He's flipping things and the disciples remembered that zeal for his father's house would consume him. He was jealous for the glory of his own father. The greater Phineas, he burned with jealousy for God's honor. He says, my God is too glorious for the temple to be turned into a place of business. Whenever religious reform and revival was brought about in Israel, it always stood behind a leader that was jealous for God's glory. Hezekiah smashed the sacred pillars. Jehoiada tears down the altars of Baal. Josiah removes the high places. And the primary motivation was jealousy for God's glory. You know, one of the most determinative questions in your life is answered by asking the question, how much do I live jealously for the glory of the Lord of armies? Well, how can we do this? Ten things. No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> how can we do this? Well, you and your own bootstraps cannot walk out of Cornerstone Fellowship this morning going, I am going to live jealously for the Lord of armies. No, it says in Jeremiah that in the new covenant, God is going to give us a new heart with a new desire that longs to know him. There is not naturally a spark of desire that burns in your heart that you need to fan into flame. There is only the reality that God gives a new heart to those who are his children. And we ask God in his word, through his spirit and amongst his people, God, make me burn with jealousy for your glory and your honor. Would you pray with me? God, living jealously for your glory and honor doesn't look any longer like stabbing people through. It looks like zealous obedience and faithful gospel, gospel proclamation, knowing that God is honored primarily through the conformity of our life to Jesus Christ and also through the advancement of his kingdom on earth. Sword and spears are no longer our weapons, but righteousness and truth are. God, in our limited time, I pray that you would give us an exalted and amplified view of Elkanah, a God who is jealous, his throne a seat of dreadful wrath girt with devouring flame. The Lord appears a consuming fire, and jealous is his name. We love you, Lord, and we're grateful that you love us. We pray this in your name. People said.